0: start with some questions. Do animals make choices? Does a cat, for example, choose to eat or to nap in front of the fire or to walk on my keyboard while I'm trying to work? Can some animals make real, you know, quote-unquote real choices, but not other animals? So uh, how about chimpanzees? And if you say yes, of course, that cat is making choices, and yes, of course, chimpanzees are doing the same, Are those the same kinds of choices that we are making? What difference does it make, for example, that humans have an intricate and structured language system and that cats do not? Can a chimpanzee intend to do something in advance of actually doing it? Can a chimpanzee be free in the same way, and to the same extent, as a person? What about a computer? We, if we assume my laptop isn't really making a choice when it does something that I don't specifically ask it to, you know, for example, crashing before I hit the save button, if not now, if not with technology the way it is now, could there be a point in the future where a computer's programming was sufficiently complex or self-contained or self-created that we would say that yes, it is making real choices? And how would we know where that line was? Uh, When would this function become free will? And of course, it'd be great if we had uh, Alan Turing with us here to help us work some of these out, uh, some of these questions out. But we don't. That's all right. We're gonna we're gonna get through it. So no problem. In any event, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whichever you prefer, and welcome to episode two of A Freedom of Ideas. Today, we'll begin our discussion of freedom through the lens of the philosophy of mind. As we discussed in the introductory episode, my hope is to examine freedom and all of the ideas that surround it from a variety of perspectives. We'll look at social and political philosophy, history, and even literature. When we ask ourselves what it means to be free, what it means to be accountable for the choices that we freely make, and what, really, freedom can and should be, we're going to need every lens and every perspective that we can get. But today, and for the next few episodes, I want to start us from what you could argue is the most abstract point in this question. The philosophical questions surrounding the idea of individual free will. So, what does it mean, really, for me to make choices? Uh, Do I do so based on a real, rich, robust notion of freedom and autonomy? Or are the choices I make constrained or even predetermined by outside factors that I'm not fully conscious of? Is it possible that I don't make choices at all? That I'm not really free? That I'm this kind of biological computer program that's playing itself out over the course of however many years without ever having really been an independent, autonomous agent in the way that I direct myself in and through the world? Now, like I said, we're going to get into political questions, we're going to get into social questions, we're going to talk about free speech, freedom of action, action, the way we balance responsibility to others against our desire to meet our own wants and needs. But I do think it's important to start here with us as individuals so that we have this sort of foundation to work from. After all, my right to free speech, from a political uh, perspective, my, the legal right that I have to free speech, that's gonna look pretty different if it turns out that I'm not actually really choosing what I say, right? Now, to talk about free will, that means we're also gonna have to talk about other ideas that surround it, like consciousness, like intentionality, like reason. We're even gonna talk about what's called the mind-body problem. See, the idea of free will is inextricably linked with these other ideas, these other questions, these other philosophical problems. I I can't, for example, be free in the world if I'm not also conscious, one way or the other, conscious in the world, right? And if all of this sounds pretty abstract to you, well, you know, maybe you think that's great. And maybe you think that's not your cup of tea. Either way, I hope you'll stick with us. It's important to me that we pull these big, strange ideas down out of the ivory towers and make them ideas that any one of us can take hold of, understand, and, like I said before in the introduction, really really play with. Um, honestly, I think it'll be fun. But, you know, as always, I look forward to hearing your thoughts, and I hope you'll be in touch. But now, without further ado, I want to go right to the heart of the, the, the single biggest philosophical uh, idea, the the heart of all philosophical meaning, if you will. Um, Really, I mean, honestly, just we're going to start right off, we're going to jump in the deep end, the crux of all great ideas uh, that define us as thinking creatures. We're going to start with pancakes. So let me set the scene. It's Sunday morning. It snowed overnight, we got the fire going, have a nice cup of Earl Grey, you Got a little, little whole milk, a little bit of honey, not too much, just yeah, just, a little, just enough, bring out the sweetness there. On Sundays, my wife cooks breakfast, and she's asked me to choose what I would like to have this morning. So, since I've been thinking so much about free will, I decide, okay, well, this is great, this is, this is the perfect chance to put my ideas to the test. So, as I consider my answer. I want to be sure that I am completely free in the way that I make this choice. I don't want any outside constraints. I don't want limitations. I don't want pressures. I don't want anything other than my independent free will to guide me in this choice. This has to be entirely me, entirely my choice. So, here we go. Take a sip of tea and let's dive in. So I say the first thing that comes into my head. Obviously, pancakes. I love pancakes. You, you got the butter, you got the maple syrup, it's nice cold Sunday morning, got nothing to do but get ready for the Eagles game. You know, I know it isn't healthy, uh, and of course this uh, lazy Sunday morning is going to get a lot lazier uh, once I break my fast with, you know, we got the fried flour and sugar and grease, but so be it. I am free, remember? And I can hardly be confined by such abstractions as, you know, proper health. But just as I state my preference, I realize that I have made a mistake. The choice that I think I'm making, this choice that should be the product of my will, my absolute, unpredetermined free will, and absolutely nothing else, well, this choice I have made isn't a choice at all. It's just the repetition of a habit. As much as I love pancakes, I'm not really choosing pancakes. I'm recreating a pattern. I'm fulfilling a habit. I'm not turning the steering wheel. I'm driving in a rut. Even as I think I want pancakes, I am in fact simply beholden to forces other than, again, my pure capacity for autonomous choosing. So I changed my order. Instead of pancakes, scrambled eggs. Maybe with some cheese melted on top. You know, we, ne- we never have those. It can't possibly be just be habit that's making me choose them. If I, I, you know, I could have said crepes, but that would have been a lot like pancakes. So maybe I was just making a little revision to my, to my prior order. It's sort of an, an arbitrary change, uh, but still being guided by this fundamental habit in my thinking. Uh, That would have been like inserting Frenchness in place of freedom, and, you know, we can't have that. So it's scrambled eggs. And, you know, ham, right? A little bit of ham. Ham will be good. And I'll take a minute here just to clarify the arrangement in our household. We both cook, my wife and I, and I, I think we're both pretty good at it. You know, sure, some nights, when it's just the two of us, we mail it in. I mean, that's, you know, that's the way it goes. We both work pretty hard. But most nights I think we have at least a decent meal on the table, And, whoever doesn't cook, that person does the dishes. But breakfast is the exception. And I don't know why, but I can't cook breakfast for myself and have it taste good. Now, other people like it, but I'm forever disappointed. So, Sunday morning breakfast is my wife's purview. And I still do the dishes. Anyways, back to my act of pure choosing. I've no sooner asked for scrambled eggs than it occurs to me that that my scrambled eggs and ham are really just another external influence, taking control of the situation, tricking me into thinking that I was actually making a choice. In this instance, the outside influence is the sort of normative concept of what breakfast is, or should be, or maybe even can be. So instead of really being free, I'm operating within this kind of limited range of what foods society deems appropriate to eat for the first meal of the day. Once again, I'm not really choosing something. I'm letting this loosely tied series of social influences and traditional constraints determine for me what choices I could possibly make and ultimately determining the choice itself. I might think I want eggs, But again, it's these external influences that have crafted that preference. It isn't really me, it's not really my free will, that's the true origin of this choice. So, back to the drawing board. Now that I'm shed of these external influences of tradition and expectation about what breakfast can and cannot be, my choice becomes clear. Eggplant Parmesan. I love eggplant parmesan. I, I doesn't follow or conform to any notion of what breakfast should be. So, so this is perfect, right? But is this a really, really more of a tr- truly free choice, or have I just defaulted to another habit? Maybe I've gotten past this externally imposed notion of what can and cannot be breakfast. But I'm right back to asking for another favorite food, something I could eat every night, or you know, I guess every morning if you let me. But there is actually a bigger problem at work here, and I'm I'm just now figuring out what that is. I was raised in a Western household, right? An American household of partially Italian descent. And so my tastes and my preferences reflect that. Sure, you know, we try and diversify with a stir-fry or a curry, but the vast majority of our meals find their origins in American or some form of European cuisine. So instead of making my own choice, I'm really just reflecting a lifetime of conditioning. Inadvertent brainwashing, if you will, that has produced my palate for food preferences. So, so much for my uh, Manchurian eggplant here. Now, Now let's get serious. How can I overcome a lifetime of upbringing and conditioning? How can I pick through what is a real choice and what is just another learned influence? Well, so then the question becomes, what is the opposite of predetermined? How about random? Does that work? Is random the opposite of predetermined? You know, I'm not sure. But, for the moment, let's just say, for the sake of argument, yes, random is at least not predetermined, right? It, it, it can't be. If we're truly being random, there's no way it could be some sort of mechanical influence that's uh, forcing me to do what it is I, I think that I want to do. So, I'm going to write the name of every country on earth on equally sized slips of paper. I'm going to put all those into a hat, and in very good faith, I'm not going to look to see what paper I'm choosing. And, you know, if I'm being honest, maybe I'm a little bit nervous about getting Iceland, because I heard once about they have the fermented shark, and, you know, aside from maybe that's really, really hard to get in this little Montana town that I live in, but aside from that, I just don't know that it sounds terribly good to me. But, you know, I'm not going to let that uh, distract me from my commitment to real, pure, perfect free will. But what if, after that... I'm still not really being free. What if true freedom means shedding myself of this limiting notion of what we traditionally call, quote-unquote, food? So does being free mean being open to eating rocks or towels or a print of Picasso's Guernica? Now, I'll admit that none of that sounds pleasant, but again, we have to remember my goal, and it's an important goal. I want to make a truly free choice. And so I can't be dictated to by all these outside learned constraints. But I'm no sooner working out how I'm going to prepare the kitchen table itself to be eaten, than it hits me that all this time that I've I've actually been locked in yet another unseen constraint, another outside factor determining how I choose. I've actually been subject to the terms of what a choice is, the choice itself. I began with a question, right? What would I like for breakfast? And then I tried to answer that question. And so you see what happened? In so doing, just in in that transaction, I submitted to being controlled by the expectations that surround a speech act in the form of a question. So put differently... I was asked a question and reflexively I simply submitted without thinking at all, without choosing, I submitted to responding to that question. The fact that I'm seeking an answer at all is a sort of determined, conditioned response. It's actually really very Pavlovian. You know, Corey hears a question, so Corey gives an answer, like a dog that, you know, barking out of fear for an electric shock. So instead of taking all this time writing countries on little pieces of paper, I should have expressed my ability to choose freely by jumping in the air, or squeezing a piece of firewood in a vice, or, or exchanging some dollars for yen. Anything at all that shows that my speech and actions are not predetermined by the expectations that surround how we are supposed to respond to questions. Or, you know, here we go, take it a step further. Should I have levitated? Is gravity my master now? Perhaps I should have restructured myself at the molecular level into one or more totally different entities. Or I should have jumped into another iteration of reality by some means of quantum transportation, whatever, that I admit I don't fully understand. But must a truly free agent be uh, constrained by such things as his own ignorance? I, I certainly hope not. Or maybe... The best choice that I can make right now, presently, is to bring what might seem like a very silly exercise to an end. So what is it we've been talking about here? Was this all just tomfoolery? Well, I mean, yes, for sure it was that. But it wasn't just that. When we consider freedom and the capacity for free will on an abstract or, if you will, metaphysical level, Our first concern is determinism. In any traditional formulation of the problem, determinism is the antithesis of free will. We're not worried yet, remember, about if and how I can be free while also being subject to laws and to governments and the constraints of living peaceably in a civil society. You know, we're going to get there, I promise. But first we have to understand how it is possible, or if it is possible, for human beings to make choices at all in the context of all these details and realities that limit and predefine the possibilities of our existence. And as we saw in the example above, determinism, this idea essentially that our choices are the result of some combination of predetermined factors, determinism can take a lot of different forms. Maybe it's a habit that dictated the choices that I make. Or maybe it's my upbringing, maybe it's my genetics, maybe it's my biology, maybe it's society. One way or the other, if I ascribe to determinism, that means that it isn't really me that's making choices. In fact, I can't really make choices at all if I really, if I really commit myself to this notion of determinism. What I thought was a choice it was really just a bunch of other factors, like an equation that really only has one possible answer. Now, I'll tip my hand here and let you know that I certainly do not believe in absolute determinism. Yes, of course, our choices are influenced by outside factors, but they're not wholly dictated by outside factors. But understanding how the mechanism of of freedom works on this level, understanding how we make choices, how we can make choices, That's going to be very important to understanding how that capacity for choices plays out in actions and in speech, in society, in politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So please bear with me and understand that this is a very real debate in philosophical circles. As silly as I'm making it sound and as silly as the examples are, this is something that philosophers really do worry about quite a bit. So let's talk about determinism. The most absolute version of determinism is the notion that everything that happens in the physical world, and remember, the physical world does include us, so everything that happens in the physical world is dictated by unthinking causal relationships. Now everyone's favorite determinist is Pierre-Simon, the the Marquis de Laplace. He is such a popular determinist, or at least he posed such a popular description of a deterministic world, that in philosophical circles he has his very own demon, which is, you know, that's that's kind of a big deal. So, Laplace was a mathematician by trade. He worked in the late 18th, early 19th centuries. Of course, historically, that grounds him firmly in Newtonian physics, and that's going to have an impact on the relevance of the problem he posed. And that's exactly how we can think of his work and his relevance. It, it is a problem, right? It's, it's a paradox. This is like Zeno's paradoxes. Laplace shows us how a rigorous series of assumptions leads us to what seems like an almost absurd conclusion. But let's start at the beginning. Quoting from, from Laplace here, from a philosophical essay on probabilities. All events even those which, on account of their insignificance, do not seem to follow the great laws of nature, are a result of it just as necessarily as the revolutions of the sun. So, let's pause here, as this is very important. What Laplace is saying, every event, every single thing that happens, no matter how insignificant, is the result of and is beholden to the natural laws of the universe. So this seems innocuous so far, and maybe even a little dry. So what's the significance? We may not see the laws of nature at work, but according to Laplace here, nothing happens. Again, not a single event in existence happens that cannot be fit within the laws of the universe, the laws of nature, the laws of physics. And remember, for Laplace, physics, uh, the laws of physics were Newtonian laws. So the very structure, then, of the universe is, this, is fundamentally mechanical. Gravity is a mechanical force that makes apples fall. We may not understand the physics of a leaf blowing at our feet, or of a bird flying over our head, or even the way our own bodies work, but rest assured, like bowling, there are rules, and nothing in the physical realm is exempted from those rules. So, let's stay with Laplace. He continues, quote, Present events are connected with preceding ones by a tie based on the evident principle that a thing cannot occur without a cause which produces it. This axiom, known by the name of the principle of sufficient reason, extends even to actions which are considered indifferent. The freest will is unable, without a determinate motive, to give them birth. The contrary opinion is an illusion of the mind, which, losing sight of the evasive reasons of the choice of will and in different things, believes that choice is determined of itself and without motives. End quote. Now here's the problem. That evil word. Determinate. There have to be reasons for our actions. Just like there are reasons why a leaf blows on the wind. Of course, I want my actions to have motives to some extent, but what if my free will is actually just an expression of these, again, outside determinant motivations? What if I, my actions, my words, my so-called choices, are all determined entirely by other factors? And in this case, we're talking about mechanical, physical, Newtonian factors, because of course I am part of the mechanical, Newtonian, physical world. To better understand the problem that Laplace was attempting to illustrate, let's introduce his demon. Now, Laplace's demon is a smart, smart lady, and she is very perceptive. She can take a single moment in time and envision all of existence. Everything that exists anywhere in the physical world, however large and extensive that physical world may be, everything everywhere. Laplace's demon can not only see all of that, she understands at the most basic causal level how every piece of the physical world is interacting with every other piece of the physical world. She not only has this perfect omniscient snapshot of all of reality in in a single moment, she also knows the speed, the direction, and the force of every physical piece of reality down to the atomic level. And if that's not enough, she is capable of of doing all the computations necessary to calculate how those interactions will continue to play out. So, for example, if we could stop time, Laplace's demon, she wouldn't miss a beat. She could explain to us, you know, if she had time to explain it and if we were smart enough to understand what she was explaining to us. She could explain to us what all of reality would look like five minutes from now, or 500 years from now, simply by reasoning and imagining how all of those causal interactions will play out. Which of course seems pretty far-fetched, but at least maybe it gets you to cut me a little slack for that whole uh, pancake business before. In any event, you see the problem here, right? If we go back to this mindset of Newtonian physics, which again, This was very much Laplace's worldview. We can imagine a world that is entirely mechanical. Every factor of mass, velocity, and direction of every piece of physical stuff, and how all of those pieces will collide in the next moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. Imagine billiard balls, for example. If we had enough information, and if we had enough of an ability to process that information, we could say in advance exactly what would happen to billiard ball number two after it was struck by billiard ball number one. So if the world, then, is a hyper-complex mechanism, uh, you know, a near infinity of billiard ball-style interactions, then the future of the world's physical state can be predicted, so long as we have this overwhelming perceptual and computational power, uh, such as our friend the demon has. And even if I I myself, personally, I can't predict the future, right? I assure you I'm really not that good at math. But the fact remains that the future of the physical world could be predicted. And if it could be predicted, again, in this scenario, if it could be predicted, then it is determined. So take an example. If someone rigs a football game, you know, they pay off one team to tank in the fourth quarter so you know who's going to win the game. Even if I don't know that the game is rigged, yeah, it's still rigged, right? It might not affect my immediate experience of viewing the game. I mean, I'm an Eagles fan, so a team tanking in the fourth quarter, that doesn't seem odd to me in the slightest. But there is a real difference between a game whose outcome is due to this mix of luck and happenstance and skill and all the other factors that play into a a professional football game and one that's basically known before the game is even started. Just so, even if I don't know what the future is, in this scenario, if it is theoretically possible to know what the future is, if it's theoretically possible to predict the future, then the future is predetermined by the past. Except, 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 the demon can't predict me, right? I'm not a billiard ball. I'm not an apple falling from a tree. The things I do and say aren't just the result of atoms bouncing around on various trajectories. Yeah, I'm not bound. I am not defined by simple physical causality, right? But what if I am? If we assume, and let me underline that, if we assume that we are made entirely of normal physical stuff, of atoms bouncing around and interacting and coalescing to form us in just the way they coalesce and uh, to form billiard balls and apples and birds and everything else, then it becomes very, very hard to justify why wholly different rules should apply to me than apply to all the rest of existence. If we are made of normal, boring, physical stuff, it's hard to say why Laplace's demon can't see and predict our molecular interactions just as well as she'd be able to predict those of a billiard ball. Now, granted, we are enormously more complex than a billiard ball, particularly, of course, in and around our brains. So the series of causal interactions that our demon has to keep track of are much more complicated when it comes to the way our physical stuff interacts. But If she's already got a picture of the entirety of existence, every star, every planet, every life form, every atom, are we human beings really so complex that we are the one puzzle she can't solve? Yeah, I I doubt that. So, to summarize this problem of Laplacian determinism, if the world, including people, is entirely made of normal, boring, physical stuff, and if there are rules for how normal, boring, physical stuff interacts, then in theory, with enough information and enough capacity to process that information, we could predict the future simply by playing out how all of those interactions occur. More to the point, even though it is not, I assume, ever going to be practically possible to do what our fantastical demon is doing, The fact that it can theoretically be done means that the state of the world five minutes from now is nothing but a direct result of the state of the world now. Existence, including people, is all just an equation playing itself out. And in that setting, there simply is not room for something like, quote-unquote, making choices. Turns out, for the folks whom we might call hard determinists, We are just billiard balls after all. Now, you might be saying one of two things right now. You might be wondering, on the one hand, about quantum physics. Or you might be wondering, on the other hand, about souls. Or I suppose if you're Francis Crick, you might be wondering about some kind of combination of the two things. But, you know, let's set that to the side for for the moment. For those of you wondering about quantum physics... Well, yes, the notion that all of physical reality is banging around like billiard balls and very, very complex, but ultimately predictable patterns, that's far better suited to Newtonian physics than to quantum physics. Now, if that's what you're thinking about right now, well, fine, but please just hold on, gonna get back to you, I promise. For those of you wondering about souls, well, let's talk. The problem, as Laplace and his weirdly specifically brilliant demon have presented it to us, is that if we, the entirety of us, including our minds, our, our capacity for choosing, our consciousness in the world, if all of what makes us us, if all of that is made of the same basic building blocks as the rest of existence, again, our quote-unquote normal, boring, physical stuff, then we are part of a complex series of physical causal relationships, and we are therefore determined rather than free. If I'm just part of the normal physical flow of causal relations in the world, then the disposition of all that physical stuff can be predicted, just like predicting the actions of a leaf on the wind. And if you can, by whatever means, correctly predict all of my future actions, well, I cannot at the same time claim that my actions are the result of my capacity for free will. But what if I'm made of more than just normal, boring, physical stuff? This is what brings us to this idea of souls. A soul, by definition, is not normal, boring, physical stuff. Souls are made of a different substance altogether and subject to entirely different rules. So what if some part of me, and perhaps, for the sake of argument, this part of me is the most important defining part of me, the part of me that makes me who and what I am. What if one part of me was made of wholly different material than the rest of, my, than the rest of me and the rest of existence? So instead of normal, boring, physical stuff, some part of me is made of different, exciting, eth- ethereal stuff. Stuff that, very importantly, transcends the rules of physical stuff. Well, in that case, because we have some of that different, exciting, ethereal stuff in our makeup, we are therefore not subject to the rules of causality of all the normal, physical stuff around it. Well, then, I've escaped the demon's trap, right? She can't predict me because of my different, exciting, ethereal, non-physical stuff. Therefore, I'm not determined, I am unpredictable, and therefore it is at least possible that I have free will. It doesn't matter what the rest of us is made of in this scenario, right? And uh, what rules our body might be subject to if we have a soul. Because the soul can be the source of our thoughts, it can be the source of our choices, the source of our motivations and intentions. If that's the case, then all of these essential features that make me, me, aren't simply the result of outside causes. A, a soul lifts me up over this, over these Newtonian mechanics that govern the rest of the world, and it allows me to be the first step in a causal chain, rather than the last, or probably actually, the middle step in an ongoing causal chain. Maybe it should give me a moment's pause that I don't really understand the soul, so it becomes a solution to a problem, but not really the answer to my question. But at least, you know, I've escaped my demon's deterministic trap, my soul has made me free. So, have we just solved our quandary? Was it really that simple? Well, no, not in my opinion, though I'm quite certain that many of the folks listening right now will disagree. Speaking very, very broadly, we can approach this question of free will and actually a lot of these other questions, the questions of consciousness, questions of intentionality, uh, and many, many other philosophical questions, we can approach this question of free will either from a religious point of view or from a naturalist point of view. Now, I don't think I need to, to, to specify that I will. Souls are part of uh, the religious point of view, clearly. By contrast, the naturalist point of view, to sum it up very, very glibly, is that everything is made of the same basic stuff, our, our famous, uh, normal, boring, physical stuff. So when you look at the ingredients list that you have to explain the phenomena of the world, including people, including minds, including choices, including, you know, us, you, the ingredients list that you have to explain those phenomena You only have natural matter. You only have your normal, boring, physical stuff. Again, according to the naturalist perspective. As such, if you want to explain free will, if you want to explain consciousness, if you want to explain all the rest of it, you don't get to call on special stuff. You don't get to have this ethereal stuff that that plays by different rules and isn't subject to the rules of the natural world. Let's look at the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy to make sure we've got our definition straight. Quote, "Naturalism is the twofold view that first everything is composed of natural entities those studied in the sciences whose properties determine the properties of things persons included and second acceptable methods of justification and explanation are commensurable in some sense with those in science." Just as an aside, I abbreviated the definition somewhat, and in so doing, I spared us having to contend with the words abstracta and possibilia. So, if that definition seemed a little bit dense and a little abstract, I I promise, nonetheless, I really am doing my best for you here. But, back to our discussion. Without arguing the point one way or the other, and without wishing to dismiss anyone who thinks or believes differently, I, fundamentally, I am a naturalist, and I'm going to come to grips with these issues while bringing to bear a naturalist's set of assumptions. Now, if you approach these questions from a religious standpoint, then you have a different set of tools and materials to work with in crafting your explanation for things like free will, consciousness, intentionality, and the rest of it. And let me be very clear. I have no interest in arguing about belief. I don't actually think it's feasible to do so. I don't even think you want to. I don't think it makes sense to prove or disprove religious belief. In any event, I have no interest in trying, and that's not what we're going to be doing here. My only point in discussing this is that you understand my perspective and my assumptions going forward. So even if you disagree, I don't think the rest of the conversation actually becomes moot. And before we move on, I do want to take a moment to point out that there are and have been many prominent thinkers who disagree. Prominent thinkers in the philosophy of mind. Prominent thinkers in neuroscience. Uh, For example, Wilder Penfield. Uh, Wilder Penfield's a neurosurgeon, worked in the middle part of the 20th century, and he's credited with having first really understood the workings of the neuron, and thus how our brains operate on a fundamentally electrochemical basis. He could touch the exposed brain of a conscious subject with an electrode and reliably reproduce emotions, memories, sensations, depending on where he placed that electrode. Now, using these methods, he was able to understand not just the cell-by-cell workings of the brain, but the overall architecture of the brain to a very large extent, and how different regions of the brain contributed to different functionality of the mind. He was certainly the foremost neuroscientific thinker of his time. And he's fundamental. I I mean, this is a a, a kind of broad approximation, but I think I would stand by it. He's basically to neuroscience uh, the same as Isaac Newton was to physics. That's how important he is as a foundational figure. Now, obviously, since his time, tons of innovation, tons of new information has been gathered, but without him, without the baseline, the foundation that he set, none of that additional work is happening. But why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about this? After a lifetime spent learning more than anyone else ever had about the brain's physical function, again, the way this normal, boring physical stuff goes on to make reportable sensations, to to store and create memories, to produce speech, to produce actions. Understanding all of that, he concluded that the brain could not possibly be solely responsible for the human mind, for consciousness, for free will, for me being me. And his complaint was understandable, even if I do ultimately disagree with it. When viewing the totality of his work and this amazing leap forward that he personally created in our understanding of the brain, he drew his conclusions really from what he didn't see. In the workings of the brain, he never found a mind, no matter how deeply he explored. He never found consciousness. He never found free will. And for that reason, he concluded that there must be something else at work. Interestingly, Penfield did an experiment which he claimed proved the existence of the soul. A good description of that, of that experiment, and again, what I believe it's flaws to be. That's going to take us a bit too far afield today, but it might be something that I talk about in a kind of occasional, an occasional side series that I'm thinking about uh, pulling together, but hopefully we'll talk more about that in the future. In any event, Penfield finally decided that there was no way for this normal, boring, physical stuff No matter how intricately it was arranged, there was no way for this normal, boring, physical stuff to make him. To account for the richness of his experience. To account for the realness of his emotions. The the sort of singular, shocking fact of his own consciousness that had been there with him throughout his many years on Earth. Penfield, and again, let me stress this. Wilder Penfield, the father of modern neuroscience. Wilder Penfield tells us that mere stuff cannot create this nearly magical phenomenon that is the human mind. Or, maybe even more to the point, it cannot create the magical experience of having a human mind. So, Penfield did what many philosophers before and since have done. While he certainly recognized that the brain was very important in all of this, and that it likely did the lion's share of the real work of remembering things, of conveying feelings, of compelling speech and action, he still felt that there must be something else behind all of it. Something that accounted for the almost magical quality of what it means to be me. The uh, To use a phrase that's actually used quite frequently in philosophical circles, the meanness of me. In short, of course, what he thought was going on behind all the physical stuff that he could study was a soul that he could not see. Now, again, I ultimately do not agree, but I empathize with the impulse. And we'll talk about this much more in later episodes, but there is something that does feel wrong to me about accounting for all of the interesting things that I am, all of the interesting things that I think, all the things that I feel, all the things that I remember, There's something very wrong about accounting for me simply through biological circuitry. And even though I think it is correct that the human body, complete with a brain, is actually the only stuff you need to create who and what we are, I'll admit that from his perspective, it doesn't feel right. And perhaps it shouldn't feel right. It doesn't seem right that all that you need to make a mind is a brain. In any event, we are going to come back to that. In the nonce, two more things that I want to say about the religious perspective. Specifically, I want to talk about why adopting the religious perspective actually does not completely get you off the hook when thinking about free will. When we adopt a religious perspective, just because we believe in God, and even if we suppose that he plays a significant hand in creating the world and us... That doesn't necessarily mean that we've solved this problem of free will versus determinism. In fact, from a a logical perspective, adding God into the equation creates problems, even as it solves others. And again, as I'm saying this, I know this sounds very heretical, I'm purely speaking from a logical perspective in all of this. Now, as a reminder, the reason I'm talking about determinism, and again, I apologize for going through this, I, it just feels like it is a fairly abstract notion, so I just want to make sure we do have it in front of us. The reason I'm talking about determinism is to establish what seems to be the essential paradox of free will, right? That freedom and free will do not seem to be able to exist in a causal, physical world. Well, we can pretty easily set up a similar para- paradox using a wholly religious point of view. If God is omniscient, he knows you completely. He knows how your life is going to unfold. God knows your future. God sees the course of your entire life before you're even born. So then how can it be possible for you to make choices entirely on your own? God, in this case, and again, I'm talking about purely in the confines of the specific logical, uh, logical equation we have in front of us. God, in this case, serves the same logical role as Laplace's demon. Because he makes us predictable, he makes it so that we cannot be free, again, from this logical perspective. Now, at least some religious thinkers would respond that it's well within God's power to know everything, including our future, while at the same time allowing us to be truly, genuinely free. Now, maybe he doesn't make it so that we can understand how that works, but, you know, that really was never part of the deal in the first place. Now, of course, as a naturalist, I would respond to this, that that's something like a deus ex machina, whereas folks uh, on, on, the, on the side, uh, speaking from the religious perspective, they, they would probably just call it a, a deus. But anyway... As we wrap this up for for today, let's go back to our great conundrum. How can we claim to have free will when all that we're made of are these very predictable, causal ingredients of normal, boring, physical stuff? If it's still unclear, think of a computer program. Think of the most complex, interactive, predictive, voice-activated program you like. Would you say now that that that, that program had free will? Would you say that it had consciousness in the same way that you have consciousness? Or is it really just a hyper-complex combination of unconscious ones and zeros? So this is a pickle, but I'm pretty sure there's a way out. Now it's not one of my devising, to be clear, but I'm pretty sure it's there. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wait until the next episode before we dive into that solution, and before we get into this discussion of quantum physics that I promised you. In fact, actually, you're going to have to wait a couple episodes, because next time, we're going to talk about the absence of free will. Again, I don't mean uh, in a political sense. I'm not talking about anybody getting locked in a dungeon. I mean we're going to talk about the possibility— Maybe even the likelihood, if all these arguments we've been making, if all these problems we've been exploring, if they sound very compelling to you, then maybe it's the likelihood that we do not have free will, that we are fundamentally incapable of making free, non-determined choices. Now again, we might think that we're free, and actually, it might be very important that we think that we're free, but we're not. We're really nothing but this culmination of countless causal factors upon which we drift through the world like so much plankton. Now, on a metaphysical level, we're cogs in a machine that dictates how we will turn and what else will turn as a consequence of us. Again, I don't believe any of that to be the case. But that's no good reason not to explore it and to understand the argument and to perhaps learn how our freedom does work by learning why we think that it might not exist at all. So, in any event, I would normally say you know, that I hope you'll tune in next time. But remember, for now, we don't make our own choices. We don't have free will. So suffice to say, I checked with the demon, she did a little math, she worked it out on a little scrap of paper there, and she assures me that you'll join us. So I'll talk to you then. I'm looking forward to it.